Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 448. We are diving back into our wild and crazy topics today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I know when we originally approached like the CBD topic, it felt so taboo to me. And today's show feels a little taboo to me too. And I know Sarah is going to bring the science and explain it all to us. But today we're going to talk about marijuana's effect on gut health. Um, and I am... I know we've talked about it a little bit, but I'm super curious about this. And I know that you'll also be talking about the difference between full marijuana and what that might do and whatever form it might be hitting your body, I guess. And then CBD and the difference between them and how it affects our health. So, um, yeah. Is that, is that accurate, yeah. Sarah? <laughs> Actually, I mean, so we got a really great um, question from a listener named Dana with, who was asking specifically um, about a condition called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And um, this was a really, I thought, like a really interesting opportunity to um, branch out a little bit beyond CBD, but also really differentiate between THC-containing products and CBD-containing products in terms of their impact on the gut. So it's, a, I think, a fascinating question. And we're going to talk you know, a, a little bit about um, some of the potential consequences of either uh, medical marijuana use or um, recreational but frequent marijuana use. Um, but also then we're going to sort of branch into like where CBD can potentially fit into that equation and differentiate a little bit about why CBD is different. We've talked on this show um, about some of the potential like pretty dramatic health benefits from taking CBD because it helps to regulate something called the endocannabinoid system. So we talked about it on episode 393. We talked about it specifically in the context of pain management in episode 420, which again, hayak hayak, I love that we did that. And then um, we also talked about uh, the science, um, where science is in terms of using CBD for pain management and potentially anxiety in pets in episode 434. So this episode, we're going to kind of like come at it from a uh, whole cannabis use and kind of back into CBD a little bit. Um, but it was also a wonderful opportunity to reach out to our favorite CBD brand, One Farm. And we are so thankful that they are sponsoring this episode. Um, as a reminder to our listeners, uh, One Farm is the brand of CBD that both Stacy and I use personally for different reasons. We actually have different um different benefits that we experience from taking CBD. Um, but the reason why we choose them is that they're like crazy high quality. They uh, grow their um, hemp on a USDA organic farm in Colorado. They um, extract um, the hemp oil, high CBD hemp oil in their own USDA organic facilities. Um, they are in control of every step from harvest to... Uh, the final bottling, and they do third-party testing to make sure that there's nothing wonky in their CBD. It's actually so clean um, that it. You, I, my favorite is to just take the unflavored oil. Like it is, it is so non-offensive. And I, Stacy, I got sent um, a bottle from a, a, another company, and I took like one, like. I took one dose because I was like, okay, like, oh, free CBD. What am I going to do? Uh, of course, I'm going to, I'm going to try it. And it was the harshest, grassiest flavor. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I just needed the reminder of how amazing One Farm is. And they have flavors too. If you prefer flavors, they have capsules. Um, they have topical um, CBD products as well. So they, um, they really are like, top quality. They're doing every step of the process, right? And we love them. I will add, I think the most important part for me is the third-party testing to ensure that every batch is meeting the standards of 
um, no THC. And, you know, we've gone into this in previous shows. You can go back and listen if you want to learn more. But for those that are concerned, um, for me as someone who held a security clearance, knowing that I was avoiding THC entirely was so important for compliance with that. So it was incredibly important to me to find a brand that ensured that there was no THC in the product because a lot of brands out there will say it's just Mm -hmm. CBD, but they're not actually testing to make sure. And actually, let's stick a pin in that because that's going to become relevant again as we talk about cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome and the potential causes. So I think that's an excellent little like little uh, little teaser for the the cool content that's coming up. But I'll remind our listeners that you can go to onefarm.com slash the whole view and save 15% off your order with coupon code whole view. And thank you again to One Farm for sponsoring the show. Okay, so you mentioned we have a listener question. I am super excited to start and ready to jump in. Yeah, for sure. So this question is from Dana, and Dana writes, I love focusing on gut health. I've read your books, uh, Dr. Sarah, plus Dr. Terry Wall's books. I rely on cannabis to help me manage some of the residual multiple sclerosis symptoms I have while I work on healing my body. I'm greatly aware of the risk of developing CHS, which is cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, as it has been on the rise in the medical marijuana community here in Portland. It's terrifying to know that something that helps us so much can harm us too. My question, how does THC affect gut and gut motility? How can we prevent CHS medical users who use regularly and sometimes heavily to help manage our diseases? There isn't a lot of research I've found surrounding the effects of THC on the gut. I know it can slow down gut motility, but how much is too much? And is there a way to counteract this effect? Does CBD have the same effect as THC on the gut, or is it different? Can they work together in the gut to create a safer gut effect versus using a higher THC ratio? Ratios are big in the medical world. We rely heavily on the science we are presented in regards to the best ratios for our specific diseases. There needs to be more talk on the potential risks of cannabis and how to lower our chances of developing something like CHS since so many of us meet the criteria of being at high risk of developing it. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Seriously. Thank you. Okay, so Dana is super smart, and I love her, like, scientific references to ratios and those kinds of things, but for those of us that are not with it, maybe you could walk us through (laughs) what CHS is. Yeah, so I mentioned that it's something called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, and I realized that that still means probably nothing to a lot of people. Um, It's actually a very rare syndrome that occurs in long-term heavy users of THC-rich cannabis. It was actually first reported in the medical literature only in 2004. And the symptoms are basically this, um, these episodes, these cyclic episodes of incredibly severe nausea and vomiting and abdominal pain. So the symptoms last like 24 to 48 hours and then they like magically go away and then they come back um, every few weeks to every few months. Um, And actually what's really unique about CHS is that more than 90% of the people who experience these symptoms also have a compulsion to bathe in hot water. So it's also called like hot water syndrome. Um, And that there's this weird thing where either long hot showers or long really hot baths actually alleviate the discomfort temporarily. And then you get out of the hot water and they come back. Um, but it's that sort of like compulsion that is part of the diagnostic criteria for um, CHS compared to other types of um, gastrointestinal disorders that might have uh, vomiting as a symptom or even cyclical vomiting as a symptom. Um, so it's it can be really dangerous. So the vomiting can be so severe that it can cause things like gastritis or um, esophagitis. So like damage of the esophagus. Um, It can leave um, CHS patients extremely dehydrated, which then can increase their risk for acidosis. Um, It can actually cause acute renal failure due to the severe dehydration. Um, And it's interesting because there's this um, instinct instead of discontinuing cannabis use, which is the the only cure for CHS is permanent 
discontinuation of cannabis. Um, people who even discontinue temporarily when they use cannabis again, they'll have their symptoms come back. Um, but there's also this like rebound effect of, because often you're talking about uh, medical marijuana users who are using um, marijuana to actually keep nausea and vomiting at bay. Um, right. This is why medical marijuana is so often used in cancer treatments where, for example, chemotherapy causes such severe um, nausea and vomiting. And so there's actually a like backwards inclination of while discontinuing it actually make the symptoms go away. There's this inclination to consume even more cannabis. Um, so it, the other piece of this that's really fascinating is that um, the normal sort of antiemetics that we might take, like ondansetron or promethazine, don't work. So you can't, um, when people show up in the emergency room, like, oh, you're vomiting a lot, that's the normal go-to is let's give you a prescription strength antiemetic, and they, it doesn't work. Um, so the only other sort of treatment that has been shown to have some um, efficaciousness that is not just discontinuing that cannabis use is actually antipsychotic medications. So um, specifically haloperidol, which is normally used to treat schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and Tourette syndrome, or olanzapine, which is typically used to treat schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, and so that actually um, reveals something really interesting mechanistically behind this syndrome, um, because it it means that it's not working through the sort of normal ways that would cause us to throw up, right? It's, it's um, the implication is that it's something related to the central nervous system and not necessarily directly related to the gastrointestinal tract. Super fascinating. And also makes me wonder if Matthew's addiction to hot water is like not related to this because he's not um using a lot of thc but i'm like maybe it's linked to something else that we need to research because he he believes that he's not clean unless the top layer of his skin is burned (laughs) i mean i i I happen to agree um (laughs) in in our house we call it the great canadian shower um but uh but because it's you know the, the way you shower in a, in a place where water is an abundant natural resource is very different than the way you shower elsewhere. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, I, that would be an interesting thing. I don't have any, any knowledge on whether or not there's another possible link between loving hot water and any other kind of, I don't know, vagus nerve, whatever. Um, but that I'm going to put on my list of to, to see, dig into is, and see if there's anything going I on get, there. This is how I get my questions, you know, uh-huh. risen, risen to the top. I just pose them to you. Um, but I do think it's important if maybe we just kind of like walk through what the difference between THC and CBD is. And I'll say I've personally watched some like documentaries and different kinds of things that have really even just from when we were kids and what was like out there versus what's Mm -hmm. out there now, if someone were to get um, something, even if you live in a state where it's legal and you go to a green shop, like the literally what's being grown is entirely um, so different. So different. So, so, so many kinds of different. Yeah, let's do that. So, um, you know, I I definitely want to talk about, the causes of CHS and what the sort of epidemiology of it is. Um, but I think it really helps to to differentiate between THC and CBD here to really understand why CHS is on the rise. So THC and CBD are both what are called phytocannabinoids. Um, so they're basically uh, plant chemicals that interact with the endocannabinoid system in our bodies. And as a reminder, the endocannabinoid system is a, a really sort of ancient lipid signaling system that mediates the interaction between the physiological response to pain and the emotional response to pain. So pain usually means something, right? An injury. And so the endocannabinoid system is part of getting the immune system activated to help heal, but also um, you can imagine, right, if you, um, you know, stub your toe or cut yourself, right, a common reaction is crying. 
um, right? There's an emotional response to that injury as well. And that's also mediated through the endocannabinoid system. So there is, uh, this is the system that um, adds context to the emotional reaction to pain. And dysregulation of this system can cause maladaptations to pain, such as depression and anxiety. So THC and CBD both interact with this system. Um, so THC, the chemical name, what that stands for is tetrahydrocannabinol, is the most abundant of phytochemical component of cannabis. And it's also the cannabinoid um, that is responsible for the psychoactive properties of um, of cannabis. So THC is what causes the sense of euphoria, um, which can also be accompanied with by like increased heart rate, anxiety, hunger, eventual sort of a sedating sleepiness effect. That is all THC is doing. CBD is the second most abundant um, cannabinoid in cannabis. Um, and CBD has a um, sort of, it doesn't have this euphoric effect. Um, so uh, for most people, there's no psychoactive effect. For some people, they'll sort of say it sort of uh, perks them up kind of similarly to a cup of coffee. I get a sort of similar effect when I take CBD. So um, CBD actually has quite different effects um, in sense. So there, the way that THC and CBD are having effects in the body is by interacting with two types of receptors in the endocannabinoid system, CB1 and CB2. And the reason why they have different effects on the body is how they actually are activating or not activating these receptors. So they both bind with CB1 and CB2 receptors. CB1 receptors are mainly in the central nervous system. CB2 receptors are mainly elsewhere. Um, so THC binds to the receptors and then activates them. And that's why they are associated with this change in um, motor function and mental status, the euphoria, all of the other effects. CBD binds to the receptors, but does not activate them. Instead, it basically regulates how those receptors are interacting with other cannabinoids, whether that's THC. So it actually lowers the binding affinity for THC. So um, it's why products that contain THC and CBD are considered to be much safer than THC alone, because CBD blocks some of the receptor binding of THC. Um, but it also can help regulate how the endocannabinoid system is interacting with endogenous cannabinoids, because we, we make our own. That's how this system works, right? So um, CBD, through this different way of binding but not activating the receptors, is more of a modulator of the system, whereas THC is more interacting directly with the system by both binding and activating these receptors. So this is why CBD in general doesn't have psychoactive properties, um, but instead it has all of these other properties through helping to regulate the endocannabinoid system. So when you take CBD absent THC, uh, there are neuroprotective effects. So it seems to um, actually preserve neuronal structure and function. This might have some uh, therapeutic value in neurodegenerative disease. It has very well understood very strong anti-inflammatory and immune regulatory actions. Um, it um, actually can even act as an antihistamine. It has very strong antioxidant effects, um, which can also then help to reduce inflammation. It does have analgesic properties, which of course we talked about in episode 420, where it can actually reduce or even eliminate pain. Um, and it actually has a potentially antipsychotic effect. So there's some new evidence showing that CBD might be used for the prevention and treatment of some forms of psychosis that have been linked to neuroinflammation. So we still need more, more data on that. Um, but it, it really does seem to have a, a, it's because it's regulating a system that maladaptation of that system can cause so many health challenges, especially mental health challenges. And then CBD has also been shown to have anti-anxiety and antidepressant um, effects. So it has actually been shown for, uh, well known for quite a while that it can have therapeutic potential in anxiety and stress. 
It's also been shown to help relieve muscle tension, restlessness, fatigue, problems in concentration, and potentially like in certainly in animal models, like behavioral and psychological measures of stress. Um, so, and certainly there are some human tri trials to corroborate that as well. So um, the big difference between THC and CBD is in this activation of the CB1 and CB2 receptors and the impact of that activation. So THC is like a, you know, hitting those receptors with a hammer and CBD is more like fine tuning the receptors. Um, so there are some things that they both have though, right? So both CBD and THC have strong antiemetic effects so they can reduce nausea and vomiting um, when things are not falling off the cart, like in CHS. Um, THC um, has a stronger impact on appetite. So CBD sort of regulates appetite, but THC increases appetite um, and also has uh, a stronger sedating effect, which can be useful for insomnia. Um, and of course, the, the interesting, like, combo of increasing appetite and decreasing nausea is why cannabis has been used by cancer patients um, and sort of other um, types of medical conditions where uh, there's a really high risk of being underweight because of low appetite and nausea or vomiting. I think what's fascinating to me um, about this whole thing is one of the things that we talk a lot about in the show is synergistic forms that, for example, mm. uh, mercury in fish isn't a problem if you are looking at holistic um, selenium and some of the other things that we've talked about or, you know, why we take um, liver pills that are dehydrated liver and not like individual forms of some of the nutrients that are in them and that how our body is able to kind of process whole forms of something in a yeah. in a better way right and so when I apply this to marijuana my brain kind of is exploding because I'm like well why would it be the case that CBD has so much more benefit really than um, marijuana as a whole and this is where this idea of how um, the drug industry has bred the marijuana plant mm -hmm. to be something that it really wasn't before in terms yeah. of how much THC is included. And I think this is really important to understand because w whenever we divert from something we consistently say, like a whole food form of, you know what I mean? I feel like we need to explain why this is, why this has become different. Um, and if you were going to be looking for a legal form of marijuana because you have a reason or it's allowable in your state or whatever it is, like what I would recommend looking for is the avoidance of like super high THC. Um, for sure. So you're going to maybe dive a little bit into that? Yeah. So um, this, uh, these statistics I found super fascinating. Um, so basically the last, say, 30 years, um, marijuana has been bred to produce a higher and higher concentration of THC. And the sort of unintended consequence of that is the amount of CBD is decreasing. So it's not just that THC enhanced marijuana has more THC, it's also that the ratio is way magnified THC to CBD. So it used to be, you know, if you talked about the super olden days of like wild marijuana, they would be almost 50-50. So there'd be almost as much CBD as THC in, in a plant. Uh, now it's like hundreds of times more THC than CBD. Um, and just to, to give you an example, so that a typical joint in the 1990s would have between one and three milligrams of THC. Uh, the typical joint in Colorado now contains 18 milligrams of THC. It's about roughly, you know, 10 to 20 times more. And there are reports of emergency room patients who self-report smoking 2,000 milligrams or more of THC per day. There's also synthetic THC um, that you can vape, which um, there's uh, some indication that that may be even an even more potent activator of the CB1 and CB2 receptors. Um, so there's the potential uh, that some of the problems with high THC and low CBD could be um, 
could be there as well, like from, from synthetic THC as well. So it's interesting because, um, there is a fairly direct line between the higher potency products and an increased risk for CHS. Um, and so there's also increased use of cannabis as it's been legalized in, in much of the country um, and Canada as well. I know we have a lot of Canadian listeners. Um, so there's also increased use as it's been legalized, but it's also this um, increase in high potency products that is uh, probably what is behind the increased prevalence of CHS. Um, but CHS is still considered a very rare complication of cannabis. Cannabis? Did I say cannabis? I meant to say cannabis. Uh, uh, okay, I'll just keep going. <laughs> just eventually, one of those words was going to just blah out of my mouth. Um, the the chances of developing CHS, I was sort of digging into some of the research on prevalence and there aren't really good epidemiological studies right now. So what there are, are a bunch of case reports um, and case series. So the a, a case study is one, uh, one person, one patient, and it's basically a description of how they presented, what their symptoms were, what the diagnostic procedures were, what the end result was, what treatment was, how they responded, right? So it's basically a example of uh, a person who presented with some kind of condition and what what ensued. Uh, a case series is typically two or more. I mean, four is a really common number. I don't know why it's always four, but um, it's a few different cases. And then there are a couple of um, retrospective studies. So looking at people who present and then trying to like work backwards to figure out what got them there. Um, but there isn't, you know, there's, it's a, a rare enough condition that there aren't like huge perspective, randomized control kind of clinical trials, um, to really understand this yet. But certainly out of the studies that have been done, it looks like roughly three quarters of the people who develop CHS are using cannabis daily or like more than once a day. Um, the most of the rest, so 20 to 22, 23% of the remaining are using cannabis at least weekly. And there's very few cases like two to 5% that are less frequent than weekly. Um, most of these patients, something like two thirds, have been using cannabis for at least two years before um, CHS develops. And as far as demographics, um, what we know so far in the medical literature is that the uh, demographics of CHS basically reflect the demographics of cannabis users. So, uh, you know, men more commonly present with CHS, but they also more commonly use cannabis. So at uh, this point, it doesn't. They don't know if any particular pop population is at greater risk. It doesn't really look like it. Um, it's certainly, you know, it would make sense. There, there would be some kind of gene that would increase the, the chances, but that hasn't been identified. Um, so we don't really understand why one person who uses cannabis daily would develop CHS and another person wouldn't. Um, but even still, even when you look at sort of daily users, um, the, the incidence is still quite low. So there was a 2018 study um, that actually looked at um, hospital coding for uh, billing insurance and um, looked at emergency department visits for cannabis-associated vomiting. So it's not 100% CHS, um, but it's probably like 90% likely that it's CHS in these um, cases. And they kind of looked back um, so they looked back all the way to 2006 and then followed how the data changed all the way up to 2013. And they basically showed that there was like just under 3,000 cases total in 2006, um, almost 18,000 total in 2013. And looking at what's changed in that time, so there's higher THC and there's also a higher prevalence of cannabis use in that, in that period of time. So I started to dig in, like, okay, well, out of how many people? So um, data from a U.S. national survey on drug use and health show that 
Um, in 2002, about 12.4 million men and 7.7 .7 million women were using marijuana. It increased about 18.4 million men and 11.7 .7 million women in 2014. Current estimates are that something like 12% of Americans are active cannabis users, but that's not all people who are using daily, right? So um, the active means that, uh, that what they're asking in those surveys is have you used cannabis at least once in the last month. So that's what an active cannabis user is defined as. So I was trying to dig in and find like, okay, what percent of these people who use cannabis are using daily so that I can figure out what percent um, might be reflected in these emergency department visits. And what I was able to find was that um, the, the, the 2014 numbers, we don't actually have very good, more recent numbers than that, um, which looked at people older than 12, um, showed that 2.5% um, were using uh, cannabis daily and 3.5% were using it almost daily um, out of the people who were using um, marijuana. And there was actually a study done uh, in 2019, looking at drug use among high schoolers and 12th graders said that about 6.4% of them were using marijuana daily or near daily. So somewhere around 6% of the population is using marijuana at that level. So, um, so taking that math into account and then another study showing, showing that CHS is not particularly well understood. It's not something that medical providers are all going to know and recognize. So um, on average, somebody with CHS needs to seek medical attention an average of seven times before getting diagnosed. So think of that as being, you know, six months to a year of this cyclical symptoms. We're seeking medical attention before somebody goes, aha, you have this cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So just doing some like rough back of the envelope math, uh, looking at uh, you know, the current estimates of cannabis users, current estimates of daily users, and this, how many people are showing up at the uh, emergency room with cannabis-related vomiting. Um, we're looking at something like uh, between 0.2% and 1% of daily cannabis users developing CHS. So it's somewhere between like 1 in 100 to 1 in 500. Um, and the risk, of course, is much, much lower when you reverse those percentages and look at um, the, the people who are, are not using that frequently. Their chance is more like 0.003%, so like 1 in 30,000. Um, so we can see that risk is increasing, but it really just looks like it's reflecting um, the fact that it's more common now than it was 5, 10, 20 years ago. Um, for people to use cannabis daily. I, I personally ebb and flow. I mean, we've talked about it um, on shows before, but it's uh, very helpful for me to see um, the statistics and the information and that sort of thing, just as a very logical data-driven person myself, um, to know that my regular CBD use when we go back to like the original question of is this um, helpful thing that is so uh, beneficial um, causing problems but I think what's more specific to this question is um, medical marijuana medica oh my goodness medical marijuana <laughs> in Portland um is on the rise. And there are, mm -hmm. you know, quite a number of states now who have legal marijuana use. And so knowing that even if that's something that you're doing from a medical perspective or because it's legal where you are, what what is that doing to um, health from the perspective of this syndrome or really, I think, kind of other things that we might want to be aware of as it relates to um gut health, for example, right? Like mm -hmm. if we're, if we're extrapolating kind of overall from this, like what else could we consider when we look at how this is affecting health from the, that perspective with THC and CBD? 
Yeah, I think it's helpful to sort of mention in this epidemiological uh, analysis, or it's really rough. I don't want to like, this is there definitely back of the envelope math level, um, just pulling numbers from five different places and trying to get a sense of how common this is, because there aren't prevalence reports yet. Um, but uh, I tried to dig into the research to find examples of uh, CHS caused by CBD use and not whole cannabis use. And it, um, I found one paper that was sort of like a narrative review that mentioned that it can very rarely be seen with high CBD use, but I couldn't find, there was no references for it. Um, actually that, I mean, the reference at the end of that sentence, um, fit the other half of the sentence. So it didn't actually fit the part of the CBD only use. There's not a single case study that's been published to look at a case of CHS caused by CBD. And of course, this is where our uh, love of One Farm and their third-party testing comes relevant again, because um, there are a lot of CBD products out there that have enough THC that it can turn up on drug testing. So we also don't know how high the quality of CBD was what was it really CBD with no THC? And if if this case, you know, without being able to point to a single case study example of it, it's it's pretty hard to make any kind of statements about whether or not CBD can cause T, uh, CHS. It's it's obviously if it does happen, it's incredibly unusual compared to um, these sort of high THC. Um, uh, cannabis products, which are definitely linked to CHS. And there's actually, on the flip side, there's postulation among the medical research um, community that actually increasing CBD intake um, or decreasing the ratio, so there's uh, less THC per CBD, that that could actually protect against CHS. Um, so there's there's actually far more researchers postulating that it's this combination of high THC and low CBD that is driving some kind of maladaptation to to THC that is driving CHS. Um, so that it's I, I think it's really important to emphasize that at this point there doesn't look like there's much risk, if any, with high CBD consumption for developing CHS. So from a completely non-scientific perspective, if I think about other things that can cause um, our body to react in a negative sort of way, for example, high alcohol consumption mm -hmm. um, and how that can have a negative benefit to the liver, um, you know, a, a bunch of different things, right, in, in your body if, if there's excessive alcohol use, the way that we would really define some of the ratios and the amounts being consumed, especially in these studies that you found as excessive THC use and how our body might react to literally psychoactive um, things that are affecting it. And so for me, I'm like, oh, that kind of logically makes sense. And if I think about other fermented things, because a lot of alcohol is fermented in natural form, you would get alcohol from example, um, fermented strawberries, right? I think we've talked previously mm -hmm. on the podcast about how um, we find that animals will find like a rotting strawberry oh, field. I had a dog growing up who would eat all the rotting plums on the ground <laughs> until she was staggering drunk. It was hilarious every fall. So if we think about it in kind of its more natural form, or even from the perspective of um, fermentation being the source of that, and maybe it doesn't go like all the way the way that you're referring like being able to do that as an animal it is it, few and far between opportunities right and so mm -hmm. if I think about the benefits that uh, fermented has to your body like you know fermented sauerkraut for example or even kombucha or different things where right kombucha if you make it at home if it goes too far it turns into alcohol right and so I'm like that if I relate that to 
the whole form of marijuana and CBD and the benefits that you get kind of like all together in a more natural form, it makes complete sense to me. And like I said, this is this is my non-scientific, like I'm just trying <laughs> to make logic out of it. But I think for me, when I think about how our bodies have evolved and what we've adapted to and how our bodies react to certain things when we're giving it something that it hasn't evolved to like that's what really helps me process and make sense of things and so this explanation of how we've bred the THC to be so high and the CBD to be so low I'm like well yeah I mean (laughs) you're you're increasing the bad and you're decreasing the good like that's not gonna that's not gonna be a a good end game for you you know well especially because the medicinal use of marijuana sort of dates back a few thousand years. Um, so at least, so, um, to think about how we've basically manipulated it just in the last few decades. Um, and lo and behold, this thing that didn't exist for thousands of years, uh, now exists. It, it does, uh, at least provide sort of anecdotal blame on the high THC, uh, content. What's really interesting to me about CHS is that there are kind of a bunch of different proposed mechanisms and no good quality data actually pointing to any of them saying like, yeah, this is, this is the explanation. So there's been some various like plausible explanations uh, put forward by different researchers. And I, I found a a very recent um, review article that was just like really trying to break down what are all the possible different causes? And it, it had this great little table um, that listed all the different, like summary of all the different causes. And then it said quality of evidence in the, the next column and the entire way down the column, it was very low, very low, very low, the whole way down. Like it's, it really is like, they're all just hypotheses at this point. There's no really good data pointing to anything, but they all kind of fall under the banner of, some kind of maladaptation or some kind of toxicity. So there's proposed mechanisms that um, the cannabinoids might bind to CB1 receptors in the GI tract, and that decreases uh, gastric motility and gastric emptying. And then that overrides some kind of brainstem-mediated effects, and that's what triggers vomiting. Um, there's the idea that maybe the chronic use desensitizes, um, right? So you think of this, this is kind of like the diabetes explanation. So uh, we've got so much THC in our system in this uh, situation that we downregulate our CB1 receptors um, so that ordinarily those receptors would have the antiemetic effects, but because the receptors go down, that causes like a rebound, vomiting, and sort of spasmodic pain. Um, There's the idea that there could be some kind of toxic metabolites that accumulate in the brain um, and or fatty tissues, and it's like a toxic effect that's driving the vomiting. Um, There's sort of the idea that there could be... um, some particular, that it's not necessarily just the amount, but there's like a genetic variation that changes the metabolites so that only if you have that genetic variation, can you get these toxic levels of some kind of metabolite that drives vomiting. Um, There's the idea that um, you might be able to, it might be a, almost like DTs, like a, a withdrawal symptom. So um, it may be that there's this, effect on the receptors at sort of high consumption level, um, that it's, um, even just this, like, I, I, cause also symptoms tend to always happen in the morning. So you can sort of imagine that just the amount of time going to sleep could trigger this sort of like weird detox withdrawal type symptom. Um, and then there's also the idea that this could be like directly related to um, the the vasculature and and how THC can cause uh, like a vasodilation and that uh, that might be why right part of the explanation is like why do hot baths actually help um, so that's that that mechanism would actually help explain hot bathing all of these different 
proposed mechanisms um, basically they basically hint at some type of maladaptation, right? So this chronic use, high THC, um, especially with low CBD, um, causing some kind of impact on receptors in some kind of tissue and or how it's metabolized in the body and that that's what's driving um, the um, uncontrollable severe vomiting and nausea and abdominal pain in a cyclical way. Um, but it's, it's really, again, like none of these have good measurements to say, Hey, you know, we did these blood tests or this MRI, like why, you know, the fact that, um, antipsychotic drugs work, but antiemetic drugs don't really imply that it's, there's some kind of neurotransmitter signaling behind it that something in the central nervous system, not necessarily directly in the gastrointestinal tract. Um, because normally like all the normal things that would cause vomiting, um, are local in the GI tract. Um, so this seems to be something that's, that's really quite different. And what's fascinating is if you, put CHS aside is that there's some really good science showing that cannabinoids, um, both THC and CBD, but especially CBD can have some pretty dramatic benefits to gut health. I am happy to hear it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think it, like I said, it does make sense to me in the context of the benefits that would be experienced in kind of a natural form. Right. So mm -hmm. Um, and I think for those people who are in an area where um, this is used medically or legally in your area, one of the things that I found really beneficial in those type of shops is that the people are educated on helping you find the things that you're looking for. And if you tell them you want something that what has, 1990s marijuana right not, if, no you, yeah. I mean you can literally say that to someone and they would be able to help you find something that they would call like 50 50 or would have some lower threshold of THC to give the benefits that you're talking about that you can point to with these studies as being beneficial and you know, if you're not interested in using marijuana, either medically or even if it's legal or it's not legal where you are, all of these, well, not necessarily all of these, because some of the studies that you've referenced, Sarah, is for both. But we've provided so much information in prior shows. I'm just going to kind of like list them off for you in case you didn't catch them as we talked about them throughout. But 393 was our first show where we really dove into CBD specifically. And then we did um, CBD for pain management, which was episode 420. And then CBD for pets, episode 434. So if you're not wanting to do overall marijuana and you want to be completely clean of THC, for example, you know, the um, myself with a security clearance, or it's just what you're comfortable with or whatever that is, you can still get the benefits of CBD without needing any of the things related to THC and the full marijuana profile, if that makes sense. I, I mean, I think that's actually, to me, that's the part that's the most exciting. And, and one of the reasons why I really wanted to dig into Dana's question is because for those of us who don't want THC, um, it really helps to highlight the benefits of CBD and, um, and for, you know, those of our listeners who uh, do want to use cannabis for whatever reason, it also provides a little bit of direction in terms of how to avoid CHS. Um, granted, mechanisms would provide a lot more direction. So uh, when there are mechanisms, we can, we can certainly revisit this topic. But um, I thought it would be really interesting to kind of, you know, one of the things that I don't want this show to do is to um, scare people who could potentially benefit from CBD away from CBD. So I want to emphasize not a single case study of CHS with CBD use, one reference in a narrative review to very rarely seen and no actual details or citations in that narrative review. So again, I look at that and I take that 
half sentence with a pretty large grain of salt. Um, and instead, there's actually this very large collection of studies showing that cannabinoids in general can be excellent for gut health and CBD specifically um, has some potential, like really exciting therapeutic value. So I thought it'd be interesting to kind of go through, we talk about the gut microbiome on this show so much now because I've become a huge gut microbiome nerd, but actually with cannabinoids, there's other impacts on the gut that go beyond the microbiome. I know that's kind of crazy to think of. It's not surprising at all. I'm, I'll, <laughs> I'll say it. <laughs> all right. So um, I think people are sort of well, um, well known, sort of understand that there is an appetite impact um, from cannabinoids, um, but actually it's a misnomer that they increase appetite. They actually regulate appetite. So when appetite is suppressed, they increase appetite. Um, but there's actually been a bunch of studies showing that they decrease. Uh, food intake in, uh, for example, like obese animal models. Um, so there's overall a normalization of appetite and actually a, um, a shift in food preference away from fatty foods, especially polyunsaturated fats, which is very interesting. These have all been done in sort of animal studies where they like give rats a choice of eating like literally just potato chips not even crushed up or anything, just give them the whole potato chip or like rat chow. And when they're given cannabis um, or, uh, or specific drugs that actually like manipulate CB1 or CB2 receptors, they don't want the potato chips anymore, which is kind of crazy. Um, there's also impacts on motility. So this is um, one of the, the main ways that uh, CBD and um, THC are impacting, I mean, this is going to impact digestion. It's going to impact nutrient absorption. It also certainly impacts different symptoms. So overall, um, uh, so the endocannabinoid system regulates uh, gut motility and what's called gut tone, I think muscle tone. So it's muscles that are contracting um, and relaxing that are pushing things through the digestive tract. And when we uh, use uh, THC, we basically reduce motility. So it reduces gastric emptying. It's why uh, cannabis has been shown to potentially be therapeutic in IBSD, irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, as well as potentially relieving diarrhea and abdominal pain from inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and this is where CBD is a little bit different because it's helping to regulate. So overall, that may look like a reduction in gut motility, but there's other studies showing CBD doesn't have a huge impact on gut motility. And it's, again, because it's helping the natural, the normal, our own human body cannabinoid system do its job better. There's a bunch of studies showing CBD especially reduces inflammation and the production of histamine in the gut from mast cells, which is super, super interesting. So um, CBD can actually have an antihistamine effect. Um, it's been shown in a huge variety of uh, both animal models and humans to reduce intestinal inflammation um, and actually has therapeutic potential for IBD. Um, with IBD, they're looking at uh, CBD alone or THC-CBD combos. There's been studies showing that cannabinoids improve gut barrier health and actually can reverse leaky gut, which is fascinating. Um, and actually, that this is where we've got some mechanisms. So they've actually been able to attribute a, a, um, a better, healthier intestinal barrier to tight junction proteins, specifically zonula occludens 1 and occludin, which I used to study and used to die and like look on a micro on a confocal microscope. So I'm like super nerding out when I see these um, little tight junction proteins show up um, in CBD studies. And then there are, of course, now we get to the gut microbiome. There are there's preliminary data showing that uh, cannabinoids uh, can improve the gut microbiome. It's still pretty preliminary data, but what we have is pretty cool. Um, so there have been studies showing um, that blockers of the endocannabinoid system, so these are um, done in animal models. Again, they're like separate drugs that specifically like 
block receptor binding of CB1 or CB2, that these actually drive gut dysbiosis and what's called endotoxemia. So endotoxemia is where a um, component of gram-negative bacteria uh, called lipopolysaccharide um, gets into our blood. And that that it's also called endotoxin, hence the term endotoxemia, is incredibly inflammatory, right? That's what drives things like sepsis. Like it's a, it's a pretty nasty um, bacterial cell wall component. So um, in terms of how THC or CBD might interact with the gut microbiome, there was a 2015 mouse study where they gave THC to um, mice in a diet-induced obesity model and showed that uh, the THC basically prevented the dysbiosis that would normally occur um, in the gut microbiome. And um, actually, they could show that they're, um, they, like, they didn't gain as much weight. Like Overall, they were healthier. They didn't have the uh, metabolic problems that the obese mice did. There was a 2019 mouse study where they showed both THC and CBD could improve experimental multiple sclerosis, um, both in their measurements of inflammation and in clinical signs of paralysis, um, and that these effects were mediated, at least in part, through the gut microbiome. So um, THC and CBD prevented the dysbiosis that's normally associated with MS. And MS is an autoimmune disease that has a very characteristic um, it's been very well studied and sort of identified the, the gut dysbiosis that's occurring in MS. Um, so it's been studied in humans and in animals. So that is a very, very exciting uh, study. And then this one I thought was even cooler. So this was a 2020 study, and they used just CBD or fish oil or both in a mouse model of colitis and showed that they had additive benefits. So both CBD and fish oil had small benefits to intestinal inflammation, intestinal permeability, gut microbiome. There's lots of other studies showing that uh, the long-chain omega-3 fats in fish oil are the most important for supporting a healthy gut microbiome in terms of fats. Um, but that where they got a big effect, like it was better than additive. So it was like one plus one equals seven um, is when they combined CBD and fish oil in this study. So I thought that was also... I thought that was the cool, that was, that was my favorite study. I was like, woohoo, uh, so much benefits to the, the gut microbiome. So I think when we sort of pull this entire conversation together, what I see is um, there's not, um, it's certainly worth having a conversation about THC um, versus CBD ratios with your healthcare provider if you are going to be uh, using medical marijuana. For the rest of us, you know, I think, what this conversation actually does is really emphasize, again, the really diverse benefits of CBD sans THS, THC. It's THS. Thyroid hormone. Nope. No, that's TSH, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what you said was. I don't know. THC Maybe is it, what you were meaning to say. THC is what I meant to say. I think it's just been so many acronyms. I was bound to mess up at some point. We got all the way through before we had that moment. <laughs> um, I just want to, again, thank our sponsor, One Farm, for both sponsoring the show, but also having a product that we can trust and stand behind. Um, as I mentioned, here, here. my the number one thing that I look for is a test that is ensures um, that it's CBD only and doesn't have THC because most of the items on the market um, don't actually test. They will put that on the label because they can, because it's not regulated. Um, but a third party testing, um, and it's a USDA certified lab, uh, organic, all that kind of stuff. And that obviously matters when you are using a high quality supplement. So thank you to One Farm for having a product we can stand behind and recommend. Um, you can get a 15% off discount if you go to onefarm.com slash the whole view and use code whole view. And if you want to hear what we really think <laughs> about <laughs> marijuana and all this, um, gosh, maybe we'll even tell some stories. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one with stories to tell. You won't know until you pop over to 
our Patreon, where we give behind the scenes extra content for those people um, who want it. And it's a way for you to support us. And we hope to catch you over there. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.